Boys and girls, your attention, please. First of all, I'd like to make a little statement. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. All of your friends are welcome. Once you learn the basic rules, it isn't really so complicated, is it? This is the Social Exchange Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you're not familiar with the format of our show, let me give you the quick and dirty. We have three episodes every month, each with a slightly different theme. One is called The Social Segment, in which we interview an expert about any variety of social topics, especially if they're topics that we know you're interested in. Another show that we do is called Poll the Panel, in which we interview an addiction expert. Today, we're pleased to bring you the very first episode of a segment that we call FSDP Presents. FSDP is Families for Sensible Drug Policy. They're a nonprofit organization whose mission is to bring communities together, to embrace enlightened drug policy, and to empower families, restore health, and to save lives. The FSDP organization is chock full of experts who continue to share and strengthen their mission each day. Check them out at fsdp.org or check out their Facebook group where you can engage in robust discussion about any of these topics. We at The Social Exchange wanted to help them spread their message widely, so once a month, we host a member of FSDP, and this is a person who may have expertise in any number of subjects, public and social policy, family counseling, addiction, harm reduction, and there's more. Today we're interviewing Glenn Carner, a licensed clinical mental health counselor from Honolulu, Hawaii, and an addiction expert. We thank our friends at Families for Sensible Drug Policy for their work and for suggesting Glenn Carner as our first guest for this segment. We know that you're going to enjoy the talk. And finally, we want to tell you about our Patreon page. Patreon's a way to donate to the show and receive rewards for doing it. Check out the page at patreon.com slash the social exchange to support our efforts. 25% of all donations go to Families for Sensible Drug Policy, so if you enjoy FSDP and you enjoy the show, giving through Patreon is one way to support both causes. I have to say and want to say thank you to our new patrons who are keeping the lights on around here. Thank you to Inigo, Mary Kay Villaverde, Timothy T, Chris with no last name, Megan McGilloway, Mariore Israel, and to Kathleen Cochran. Thank you to all the new patrons, and thanks to all patrons and to all future patrons, because your contributions will go a long way to help ensure that this show is long-standing. Again, to check out our Patreon page, go to patreon.com slash thesocialexchange. Now, please enjoy our very first episode of FSDP Presents with our guest, Glenn Carner. Today's guest is Glenn Carner. Glenn is a licensed mental health counselor from Hawaii. He runs an addiction program in Honolulu where he helps both adults and adolescents sort out their addiction and mental health issues. Glenn, thanks so much for joining me. 
Aloha, Zach. Thank you for having me. I know a little bit about you. We spoke on the phone a few days ago. So let me see if I can summarize what I know so far, and you'll stop me if I get off track. Sure. You help people with addictions to regain control of their lives, according to their own standards of what it means to be living a balanced life. And mm. nothing about your method implies mandatory abstinence from drugs or alcohol or anything else. Is that a fair description? I would say that's pretty accurate. We take, a, I would say, a more holistic approach than just looking at addiction. So, you know, I come out of the biopsychosocial model. So I'm looking at things like uh, physiological health, uh, mental health, as well as sociological supports. And all those things have uh, different value to the patient, depending. And we try to access, uh, if they're having a substance use disorder, wherever we can, uh, whatever our entry point can be. Uh, to try to get in there and try to help them take whatever step they want to take. And that, and that can be anything. Um, as long as we're making things better, we're happy. It almost sounds like what you do is just help people in general, and addiction happens to be something you help them with. I think that's a pretty accurate description. You know, a lot of conventional drug treatment, you go in there and, and the entire focus is on the substance use issue. And there's typically so much more to the person, uh, including their own mechanisms of healing and things that we can sort of lose in the context of just looking at did they or did they not take a certain molecule and and I think that's a fairly limited way of looking at a at, at a full you know a full comprehensive human being uh, through those eyes it would almost be like inviting someone to you know come in for treatment for depression and then the entire focus is the depression without maybe looking at even nutritional factors that may be leading to that um, you know, sociological factors, situational factors, there's, there's, there's more than just substance abuse. So I think the, the, you know, to look at something that narrow, as much as that may be the, the significant presenting uh, issue that is, you know, overwhelming everything, um, there's still a lot of person left under there. And, and, you know, well, I could go into that a little more, but to say, you know, people using substances, that's, that's also not the entire experience of their lives. You know, you administer a drug, Maybe if they're they're using regularly four times a day, um, you know what are they doing the other uh, the other times? Um, mm. There's a lot of life left in there that that often gets ignore, ignored just because people are looking at the drug so specifically. I like to start with definitions. How do you define addiction? Mm, well, I probably you know. I would say the most basic definition is is sort of the, you know, you're engaging in this behavior and you're repeating it despite the negative consequences. That's probably a pretty close one. Um, I, I, too, try to migrate away from that language, things like addiction and addict. Again, I, I find that that wraps up a person in a, in, a, in a neat package that may not be represented of them. So I spend a lot more time, I think, talking about substance use disorders and habits. And I, and, you know, I do not, not to sort of minimize the intensity of, of the actual, you know, use disorder, but um, like I said in, in, in prior, you know, it's, it's in, in the spirit of that theme of this is part of the individual. You have a, you know, use disorder. You have a habit. Um, you know, I don't just work with substance abuse. I have patients that come in with a myriad of different, uh, you know, compulsive or habitual behaviors. I have patients that are addicted to, or I should say, uh, have, have issues with exercise. I have, I have patients that have issues with healthy eating. Um, so it's, you know, we, we sort of pick the negatives, whether it's, you know, sex addiction or video, you know, video games, these types of things. But in fact, it seems like there's a myriad of behaviors that can be reinforcing and, and uh, you know, become problematic, I would say. So 
uh, use disorder would be best. Uh, again, I, I try to make it what it is, which is um, a lot of it is also not aside from the you know biological, psychological habituation. I mean, a lot of it is is uh, is is just uh, it's almost like a deficit. You know, a, a big way we do treatment is by re you know replacement of things. You know, we're looking at sober scheduling. We're looking at uh, bolstering those times when when you know substance use or whatever may be at play. And and oftentimes you can modify some of the, you know, I call them micro moments. You can modify some of these key use times uh, to perhaps reduce around there or, you know, moving toward abstinence. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's not like someone is just a drug user. There's a lot more there to work with. So if you're going to use the term addiction at all, which it sounds like you try to avoid if you can, yeah, you're talking much. about, you're opening up that definition to far more than just drugs. It's the experience with something itself. Is that right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really about habituation, right? A- anything that causes a significant, you know, central nervous system effect, your, your brain's all lit up, you know, you have a rapid administration of something, a big woo-hoo, and you get enough big woo-hoo and, and enough deficit on, on other things, and you find that your big woo-hoo is working for you. It, it doesn't really matter what that is, whether it's video games you know, or pornography or whatever. It can be anything that fits in there. It seems to me that you know, the, these habits, you know, to use that word, um, are just about as normal as possible. I mean, they seem so, so typical. And, you know, remember, we see these in, not only in rat studies, but there's even some other studies where you see this type of, you know, habituation. I forget what I was just, uh, what I had just heard, but it was some really interesting sort of like non-mammalian creature. Um, it might be, um, oh, I forget, Zach, shucks. But it really showed you that this idea of habituation and not just substances uh, can become problematic. I think it was like birds or something like that. But there are mm-hmm. other animals that run into these types of addictions, and, and they're just sort of these feedback loops that that creatures experience. And uh, God forbid it's substance abuse, you're going to be in for, you know, a, a, a substance use, so you're going to be in for a world of hurt, particularly in the age of prohibition. Uh, but again, this is normal stuff. It doesn't have to be so extraordinary when we address it. Oh, my God, you have an, you know... Gentle, like a little less stress, I think, in the whole thing would be a better approach. That mm. really sticks out to me, if I'm going to use the term addiction to describe something, is the, mm. is the leaning on that initial woohoo, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't give you that feeling anymore, and even despite all of the negative consequences. Sure. And that, I think that's just as insidious, save for you know, drug poisonings and things. Um, but yeah. in, in terms of the lifespan as we know it, that seems just as dangerous no matter what it is that that the person has the experience with. Well, I think we have two components there when it comes to that reinforcement, right? We have the dopaminergic component, which seems to be the the driving motivator, the seeking, right? You have that, when am I going to get... And that's why, you know, again, and not to go too crazy on prohibition, but anytime you are depriving an individual and they've even they even just uh, had some research come out on this when you are coming from a oh I'm not going to do that or I'm going to stay away from that the brain goes absolutely bonkers in trying to steer itself to achieve its objective and especially if it's something as strong as you know a, a, a big dose of a, of a substance that really like uh, you know fires off a 
a, a ton of chemistry in your brain. And so you have the dopaminergic drive, which is your, your more your motivation, your, your seeking, that feeling of, of deprivation and getting it. And then I think what you have is, is essentially opioid receptors, and that's where your big reinforcement comes. And, and, and I say that because, you know, when you look at, for example, you know, a cocaine use disorder, You'll see a lot of individuals, right, they've depleted their experience of pleasure on cocaine. It may last 10 seconds followed by, you know, the next three hours of intensive paranoia and wondering, mm -hmm. why do I ever do this? Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like you have a lot of, like, dopamine effect, dopamine effect, seeking, seeking, seeking. They even administer, but they don't get that big pop of, uh, of whether that's sort of opioid-based receptors or whatever kind of going off in that respect. Um, I would think that as opposed to like nor norepinephrine and other things with cocaine, but it seems like there's that, those multiple components. And I think it's important to address that because we, you know, often in addiction, we talk, oh, we get a big dopamine hit. Well, that's not exactly what seems that dopamine's doing. Dopamine seems that it's more driving, driving the behavior to seek the, the reward. And once the reward comes, then you have your opioid based explosion or whatever explosion there. Um, but, but I think both those components are at play. Now, would you say, help me parse this, it wouldn't be sure. the dopamine driving the ship, right? I mean, I think people might get into the weeds there where they think that dopamine is something at play that once activated somehow, whyever it's there, steers a person rather than the experience activating the dopamine system, the striatum. Yeah. Well, I see dopamine as like the motivator, I don't think it's just getting high. I think there's a big part of it that's that's not getting high and wanting to get high. Right. See what I'm saying? No, no. Yeah. I see. I see. What, I see what you mean there. That part. Yeah. That part. I. I was fully granting, and it's not that I'm not granting the other part. I just wanted to see yeah. if we could. So let me let me see if I can summarize before I get sure. trapped myself here. It, it is the seeking, as you say, that 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 drives that part of the brain. It's it's not the drug yes. itself. It's the anticipation that a drug will give a person an experience right. they see. The, the anticipation, yes, the striatum, you know, in the brain has decided that this is the reward that I primarily like. Let's achieve that. But I right? Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think I think that's what's pushing a lot. Right, not even necessarily the drug administration, but even the anticipation, the feeling of, of, of deprivation. I think all of that is the dopamine-related stuff versus the big firing off of opioid receptors or whatever reward receptors when the actual drug is administered. So I think addiction is taking place way outside the drug. And I mean, if you look at the varying behaviors that can you know come about in in problematic ways, it seems like you don't have to be drug specific at all. There's all sorts of things. Um, like I said, exercise is one. I mean, I've had, imagine this, right? So I've had a, I've had a patient who, um, they're complete, you know, essentially their, their problem started when they started, uh, compensating with calories in with exercise, right? So, okay, I ate this donut. Now that's this many calories. That means I have to apply this amount of exercise. So just having the brain fixate on sort of this pattern and, you know, again, body type, look at, look at body type. So if we're not talking about this big drug reinforcer boom, um, what are we talking about? That's driving somebody in that situation into quote unquote addiction, right? Something's there. It's not just a big drug effect at the end of the, of the experience. It's, you know, it's, there's, there's other mechanisms that work clearly. And 
it was really, it's, I guess what I was saying is that there's nothing about addiction, and like you're saying, there's nothing about a drug in and of itself that triggers some sort of unique dopaminergic response. It's just that when somebody chooses a behavior that they know is detrimental to them, they may lack attractive alternatives that might lead them into a better direction. I would think that's exactly right. I mean, the brain's got a lot, you know, brain is just trying to adapt. It's trying to, it's trying to work out whatever works best in the current environment and situation. Um, and, and if you're, you're feeding it psychological patterns that are repetition and, and very, you know, uh, Oh God, how can I even describe that? Like, um, just sort of these maladaptive obsessional sort of programming, right? Where maybe it's, you're feeling a bit, uh, you know, anxious or loss or whatever it is when you're not doing it and then you feel better doing it. I mean, any of these things can become problematic. You talk a lot about harm reduction and I want to ask you about what that means to you. So listeners know that I'm an outspoken advocate for harm reduction, but I've learned that what counts as harm reduction for one person, uh, I guess, can mean something quite different for someone else. So tell me what harm reduction means to you, if only to orient listeners. Sure. You know, it's funny because... Yeah, you mentioned harm reduction, and and it's it, you know I guess to some, to some folks even the word sounds a little weird. Mm. Um, it kind of is a little off putting. Um, I see this this whole you know harm reduction experience very different. If if I could you know if there was no substance abuse right there was there was just normal mental health care. What we would be describing is standard basic humane practice mm. in any other uh, mental health discipline or whatever. Um, Only in substance abuse do we have to muster up not damaging our patients as like a basic, you know, tenant that we had to introduce because essentially we were so harmful to patients and we continue to be in substance abuse treatment to, to, to a, to a great degree when you look at overdose and some of these other issues based on the reality of the, the patient. Um, so, so harm reduction, you know, I I would almost call like basic client centered care. (laughs) I know it's a lot less dramatic, but literally all we're doing is delivering care that is client centered, that is based on the client's goals. If my patient comes in and they say, Hey, I don't want to quit heroin. I just don't want to, uh, die of an overdose. Well, then we're going to look at ways of actually doing that. We're going to look at, Oh, well, here's some ways of, of doing test shots of, of, of the drug you pick up, or here's a way of getting clean needles, or here's a way of anything that's going to help the patient not die. And I, I actually had mentioned this, um, you know, I don't do, um, I'm happy, you know, sobriety, great. You're sober. Wonderful. Um, I, I, I was sort of, I have this line now and it says, and I hope, you know, your listeners get this, but it's always safety before sobriety. Hmm. Right. And that's really the essence of harm reduction for me is you, you know, your very first thing should be not getting your patients sober, but should make, be making sure they're not going to be dead in the next couple of months. Um, that to me is, is where treatment needs to start. And again, of course, a lot of the dangers of that are not inherent in the drug, but more due to the prohibition, uh, aspects of illicit drugs and the adulteration and the rest of it. But, um, always safety before sobriety. And that's what, when I'm thinking of harm reduction, I am, I am joining with my patient. I am looking at whatever next step we can do to make whatever better. And we'll take that. Um, I don't need to dictate the rules. My my patients come to me to get better. They're not typically court or court ordered. 
Um, you know, substance abuse is a big old spectrum and the vast majority of people who you see with real severe problems are the tip of the iceberg, but there's a, a huge majority underneath that with varying degrees of substance use issues that are not being addressed in conventional treatment, for example. And even the most basic little harm reduction techniques, I mean, so, so to give you an idea, you know, if I have a patient with alcohol, right? you know, working with a couple uh, couple of folks right now. Um, okay, so we now have breathalyzers available in their cars. We now have big structural planning along when they go to the bar. Okay, we have three drinks maximum. Here's where that breaks down. Here's where that doesn't. We go beyond that. We already see, uh, you know, a lack of ability to manage. But, but for these folks, I mean, having a certain degree uh, you know, not exceeding a certain limit, well, they show a b the ability to manage and make no mistake, they definitely have substance use issues. So, um, so let's, you know, the, actually here's the best harm reduction line. Credit to Kenneth Anderson, uh, harm reduction for, he's so amazing. His line, and, and you may have heard it, Zach, mm -hmm. better is better. That's right, yeah. That's it. That's what I tell my patients. I stole Kenneth's line, better is better. And that's all that matters in practice. Um, so, so that's harm reduction to me. If you're making something better, you are reducing harm. Um, I'm a fan. The patients are a fan. We retain our patients by being client-centered. By the way, that's a critical factor that nobody ever talks about in treatment is retention. We kick them out and blame them. Um, but yeah, harm reduction, it, you know, and even there, harm reduction in terms of treatment engagement. Um, are you are you pushing something on your patient and then they drop out in a few days because that's not where they were at? Or are you joining with them and making sure you have established a rapport so when more difficult things do come up, you can maintain the engagement and go through things with treatment. And your patient's going to feel that if you're doing client-centered therapy, harm reduction therapy, whatever they want to be doing instead of what you want to be doing. So it's like you're saying, let's think about what you're doing already and let's think about how you get the same things, all of the things that you, sure. that you want with no limitations, except let's see if we can do it in a safer way. Yeah. And a lot of them have skills already. You know, we ignore that in treatment, but you know, we, oh, you're, you know, mm. you're an addict. What the hell do you know? And, and, and again, not to be traumatized by more conventional treatment, but we hear those types of things a lot. And, and a lot of these patients also have their own coping skills. You know, they've, they've gotten to this place on the spectrum of abuse or of, of substance use, but, uh, but still, they still have, a, you know, some of them have lives, some of them have businesses, some of them have a lot of functional supports that may still be able to pull someone out of a certain level of their use disorder when maybe somebody else doesn't have that. And that's also why treatment needs to be so individualized, uh, because we're not talking about, you know, everybody is different who walks in the door. As much as I'd love to, to have some sort of protocol that would be like, you do this, you do this. Um, I have some folks that come in there and we are, oh, all of a sudden they're joining, you know, the UFC gym and spending five days a week there in their evenings. Um, oh, another person. Okay. Well, they're using like theanine and 5-HTP and it sort of helps with their mood a little bit and they're going that direction. Someone else is attending 12-step meetings and they're like, man, I love these meetings. I'm getting so much out of them. Um, someone else is, is, you know, yoga, right? Get sober with yoga. There's a million ways to, to climb out of a habit. It's up to our job as therapists to sort of work with the patient and support them and teasing that out based on their strengths, not what we think is the best to try to run them through, which is often alienating, disconnecting, and results in, in a lot of the failure I think we see in treatment. Contrast that whole scope of your model with what we might call a more mainstream approach. 
Well, we don't have an 80, 800% uh, increase in overdose rate when you're discharged. I'll tell mm. you that. Um, just to, to throw that off the cuff. Um, so, you know, look at conventional treatment. Uh, conventional treatment, you're going to go in there. Abstinence is going to be your only option. Uh, if you're not ready for abstinence, well, you're a failure. You, uh, you, you know, you're just, and, and what they'll say to you is they'll say, you're just not ready. Well, ready for what? Are, are you, you're not ready for, for this treatment clearly, but you might be ready for doing some other things. Mm. Number one, um, oftentimes if use continues, of course, in the center, oh, we can't have that. So, uh, so, you know, that person gets kicked out of the treatment. Um, oh, and I would say this, you know, a lot of the, I, I, Zach, it's not uncommon for patients to come into my outpatient center and start crying when you talk to them about a, a reasonable, personal, you know, hey, you're not getting kicked out of here. If you exceed ASAM level uh, one and you need more care, well, we'll definitely work with you on making that referral and getting that set up. But the last thing we're going to do, if you are if you are moving forward or even stable, um, if your life is getting better and you're finding benefit in, in working with us, well, we'll keep coming. Um, if we can't put something together that works for you, we'll find a better way for you together outside of our center. But what we're not going to do is we're not going to shame you. We're not going to reject you. We're not going to tell you what a screw up you are because you have a use disorder. A lot of the patients come to me are are are, are more functional in terms of even like uh, you know business wise or whatever. You know psychosocial functioning is off the charts. You know you get a lot of a lot of high level people. And here's another thing. I mean we offer this private individual psychotherapy for substance abuse. Um, you know you can't even get that help. If you have typically a use disorder from maybe a more conventional treatment center, they don't even know what to do with you. You can't come in there. Hey, I want to get some counseling. Oh, I want to work on this. Oh, I'm still using, but this, um, they have no space for that. They Mm. have space for typically mandated, uh, you know, tip of the iceberg, most severe, uh, patients and, Boy, doesn't that leave everybody else who is having, even even as substance use disorders ramp up, I mean, there's tons of opportunity for intervention there. Even with the psychoeducation, you could probably deviate, you know, or or divert a habit, Uh, but we don't do that. So it's nice being able to kind of work with those folks too, when conventional treatment is, is typically not even serving somebody until they've gotten themselves in a situation which is very severe. And like I said, those are typically the most severe patients and don't represent the majority of folks struggling with substance use. So, um, so you're going to get a user-friendly experience. You're going to get a patient-directed experience. You're, you're not going to... Uh, w- w- if we are hurting you, we are not doing our jobs. You've, you've hurt enough. You've hurt yourself enough. The people around you are hurting. Everybody's hurting. We try to reduce pain at family and addiction counseling, not increase it. So, so whereas a conventional model might say to somebody, you're just not ready, you would ask, what are you ready for? If any therapists are out there and they're saying things like, you're not ready, they need to, they need to, I don't want to say maybe smack their head, smack themselves (laughs) in the face. But let, uh, let me just speak to my fellow therapist about there. If you are telling your patients you're not ready, you are failing, okay? Mm-hmm. You are failing as a therapist, you are failing your patient, and you are probably harming the entire dynamic. What you would do much better doing as opposed to telling your patient that they're not ready or making that decision is to work with your patient. Not ready for what? 
maybe not ready for what you want to do in terms of the treatment provider, but you might find, you know, your patient very willing to make certain steps that may be even smaller or uh, a little bit easier for them. Um, you know, going from full-blown addiction into total sobriety, I mean, just at face value seems rather radical. And, and again, great, hey, terrific, get sober, awesome. But that should not be the only course that we give people to, to get better. Um, that's extremely limited. It often doesn't have like that, you know, happen like that. People chew away at their addictions. The vast majority quit without any formal substance abuse treatment whatsoever. And we need to be hearing our patients and working with them and, and not telling them that uh, they blew it. And that's why they can't come to treatment here anymore. I despise that. It's iatrogenic harm. It's harm from a practitioner. And it has no place in any area of mental health. And I hope to normalize mental health to some degree um, to where we can fold, you know, fold our, fold our substance abusing, uh, you know, brothers and sisters back into conventional mental health and, to, and as opposed to treating them like pariahs and, you know, they're somehow outside the course of making things better. Theoretically speaking, what do you think about the disease model? Um, the disease model. I think it was useful for insurance billing. Mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, I think it's useful for having, uh, somebody identify that, Hey, I have this condition and this condition is, you know, common and typical and other people experience it. And I don't have to feel necessarily like, um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm the odd man out where I don't like it. Um, and, and where some of these things get a little dicey and I acknowledge neuroadaptation, I acknowledge relapse and the, and the re-onset of, of use disorders, but even that is very specific. You know, a lot of people do use other substances after, uh, you know, after a period of addiction, uh, a lot of, a lot of patients, not actually not even patients, but a lot of people will use cannabis after using heroin for a, a period of time and find that that's helpful to them. Um, so, so maybe not, you know, disease, I would say it's not so terrible, but, but what we have wrapped around it in terms of the chronically relapsing part or the use once you're, you're going to, you know, your, your, every other drug is, is, is your demise, all of these things. I don't know who stuck, actually, I do know who stuck all those on there. That is again, the most severe, uh, 10% of the, of the pyramid, uh, top of the, you know, top of the, the food chain, most severe folks who absolutely need to be realistic and be like, you know what, maybe I can't touch these things. I, you know, whether you want to say addictive personality or whatever you want to say, I, you know, acknowledge that totally, but do not extrapolate that out to incorporate every single person who has a drug problem because you are alienating them and making them feel like, you know, I don't even recognize what you're describing because that's not me. I, you know, I've always done this or I've always done that, whether it's booze or not, or, or who knows what they do. It's all individualized. So I would say disease, yes, as much as that disease could be completely individualized to every person who has it. And of course, you know, n you know, uh, uh, neurologically, it's not like you can fMRI somebody or MRI them and, and see the disease. I, I, I'm not a fan of the disease model just because it's, uh, uh, you know, the, consistent with sort of the diseasing of, of America and all this stuff. Um, yeah, I don't really look at that. I, I, I look at it more, I'm a strengths-based therapist. I mean, I'm looking at what you do great and how to make that fill out, you know, fill in the gaps more and more. I'm, I, I don't come from a, you're a this necessarily.
Um, again, because my patients do have a lot of strengths. They're not the, they're not the tip of the iceberg guys, the most severe, and there's a lot to work with to, to, to make things better. So, um, I'm not using the disease concept, uh, in my language, you know, in my language and my therapy. Um, I do acknowledge, you know, a, a significant, you know, the chronic relapsing nature of habits and things like that. Uh, but I'm not labeling that on any particular patient unless they particularly, hey, I find it valuable to know I have this thing and I can relate to others because they've had that experience and that's this disease of addiction. Fabulous. If that's, if that's how you need to frame things up, great. But um, you know, I let, I let my patients sort of define how they want to, you know, grapple with the, with the use disorder as opposed to, uh, myself and the model. So when someone you work with describes their condition as a disease and you say, all right, well, you know, if that helps you, mm-hmm. let's stick with that. Sure. Do you find that speaking with them, actively listening, maybe motivational interviewing helps them articulate the the real scope of what's going on a little bit more in a little bit more of a clear way yeah i mean if somebody ident- you know they've done their research and they or or they feel like hey this is how people label this and i didn't understand that this is like a thing that happens and i think that's fine um you know i i, I i'm always mostly what we're talking about in therapy in terms of moving through motivational interviewing is just what are what are we doing uh, regardless, but it, but if a patient is focused uh, on identifying themselves like that, um, I'm I'm supportive. Uh, you know, okay, that that's the model we're working from. Then then I, as the therapist, need to convert myself to accommodate the patient, not the patient accommodating me. Which is also another thing we see in conventional drug treatment. Which is, oh, if you don't accept the disease concept then, uh, you know, suddenly you're somehow in denial and don't want to improve your life. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. So I would say the disease concept as defined by the patient, um, you know, that's the one we go with. What would be the downsides if there are any, like detrimental downsides, if there are any of, of calling addiction a disease? Um, I think that the problem comes from a lot of the conventional thinking around the disease model. Uh, well, I mean, look, well, let's see. I mean, you know, the disease model says once you use a drug, you know, if you ever use another drug, you're, you're kind of down the river. Well, once a patient experiences that that's not, maybe not the case for them, um, well, they're going to sort of poo-poo the entire concept of it, right, which is what we see in all sorts of things. So, um, so we, we see them, you know, you know, their sort of own confirmation bias comes into play and they're, oh, well, if the disease model says this and I'm not that, well, I guess that doesn't apply to me. And, you know, I want to dismiss these other aspects of, uh, of the disease model, which may actually be very applicable to me or, or, Mm -hmm. Hey, I went to 12 step meetings and they told me about the disease model and that didn't necessarily fit with me. Um, well now they're in this sort of, you know, contentious relationship with that, with that, with their, their, that concept, their own self-concept. You know, they have sponsors and things telling them that um, that's where things can become problematic. If, if, if it's a good fit in the person for them, it's a good fit for the therapist. Other than that, I don't care if it's a disease or a curse or witchcraft or what it is. <laughs> and, and by the way, I, I would go as far, uh, you know, if I had a patient come in and they were like, look, I've been cursed. This is the curse. Um, make no mistake, we will start talking about curses and we will start talking about, um, you know, sort of those culturally specific things to them. I remember there was a, 
adolescent patient over here in Hawaii where a group, uh, 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 they, they actually wound up doing sort of a spiritual cleansing on the house. And, uh, and that was effective for that family. And, uh, and I say that because that to me embodies real client-centered therapy. Anything that helps, um, anything in that, like we talked about harm reduction, um, I, I, you know, all of that is good. What do you think about a conception of addiction? And, you, you know, you might nest yourself in this kind of concept, mm-hmm. which resists that moral premise uh, that addictions or drug use all have negative moral implications, and which also reject the term addiction itself. Like I'm channeling Thomas Saz here, mm-hmm. people who say, look, let's not use diagnostic terms to define normal ranges of human behavior. Is that yeah. around where you sit? Yes. I, uh, there was another book, um, The Myth of Mental Illness, and mm-hmm. it talks about, yeah, it talks about diagnoses being essentially a lens uh, between you and your patient. Um, you, you, start, you stop looking at the person and you start looking at the disease or, 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 or the diagnosis and that becomes the focus. I think that's very disconnecting from the patient. Um, the only thing, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm more of a, a fan of Scott Miller's work, uh, Dr. Miller, mm-hmm. who's very much uh, the only thing that, or I would say not the only thing, but one of the primary things that, that really matters is patient engagement and patient feedback. Um, beyond that, I, d- I don't need too much to go on as much as does my patient like me? Do they like what we're doing? Um, do they, do they think we're going in, in, in the, the direction that's best for them? And did we address the things they want to address? Uh, beyond those four questions, I, I, I honestly, I don't care too much about diagnosis except in, as it applies to billing and, and communicating with my fellow providers, if there's a transfer or something like that. But other than that, um, labels, uh, you know, we're changing them all the time. There'll be new ones all the time. And I just assume, uh, whatever the patient's milieu in terms of their experiences, that's going to be mine. What do you think now? Let's talk about some of your action steps. What do you think of drug replacement? I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that. And maybe you can actually help unpack the theory behind that method. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so again, that line safety before sobriety, I, I think I'm, you know, shoehorning in another word there. Um, and now I, it kind of goes for me, safety, then stability, then sobriety. So let me give you an example of that. Um, you know, here, conventional treatment, you come in, you got to get off those drugs, right? Yeah. Get off yeah. of them as quickly as possible. Well, I'm an outpatient provider. I don't have the luxury of, uh, of locking someone into my, you know, center for 90 days. I don't, I can't really do that. But what I can do is use pharmacological interventions with neighboring psychiatrists and things like that. And we can get all sorts of creative in regard to drug supplementation. So when you bring that up, so say we, we do our safety, stability, and then sobriety thing, right? I got that written down. So if we have our safety and our patient's not going to die in the next few weeks, who knows how they've gotten there, whether it's, you know, supply of drugs or drug testing, who, who knows, whatever for your patient, okay, now they're safe, we're, we're out of the woods. You know, the next, la- the next uh, word there, stability. So that's where things, um, and again, this is, this is not a linear path here, but, but that's things like where we talk about maintenance therapies and, or even maintenance therapies or supplement therapies. And I love that stuff. I mean, think about the client-centeredness of it. You have a person that uses exogenous drugs, right? They're, they're taking things from the outside and taking them. That's what they're good at. Um, they're, they're an absolute expert in that. So, so when it comes to something like 
what's the easiest step we could take or the lowest barrier to perhaps saving someone's life, right? Uh, I'm all I'm all about, hey, we can, you want to get to sobriety? I'm thrilled to, we can get there. You want to get there now? Great. But if you're not wanting to get there, let's at least make sure that biochemically you are ideally, especially if we're dealing in the age of prohibition, on a stable supply of whatever is activating those same neurotransmitters and those same neurons that were uh, so prevalent in the substance use disorder. I'll give you a perfect example of that, and not many folks out there are doing this, and it's probably the coolest stuff I do. Actually, well, there's a couple of cool things. Sinclair method's pretty cool, but, but uh, agonist therapy we're talking about. So when we talk about agonist therapy, we're talking about activating the receptors as opposed to blocking them, right? So um, I am on probably, we've probably done about maybe about eight patients now using psychostimulant uh, medications for cocaine addiction, okay? Now, there's research on this. Uh, they've used modafinil, which is another, uh, it's not amphetamine-based stimulant. But I have had now a number of patients that in working with their uh, general practitioners or their psychiatrists can receive, right, five to 10 milligrams of Adderall twice a day which, com which has a significant satiating effect on those receptors, right? So just, just imagine this, yeah? So we've achieved our safety. Now I have a patient, right? They're, they're a long-term cocaine user. They haven't been able to get off. Now, and by the way, I need to qualify this, this medication, when we do agonist therapy like this, um, you know, it's not Suboxone, which is partial agonist and kind of sealings itself out. But the last thing I want to do is give someone who's addicted to cocaine a bottle of amphetamines to, to be like, hey, manage this yourself. And, and you'll even see in the therapy, you know, you'll see the patient like, oh, man, I, you know, I love this. This is great. Of course, you're, you're giving them amphetamines, which is, you know, directly related to their, their stimulant addiction. But, but the ability they have from that point to begin to stabilize. So, so just imagine, right? Patient administers first dose of, of, say, Adderall, say 10 milligrams in the morning. Um, you know, that may get them through a, a particular high risk period when they would first use cocaine. Then we get up towards maybe the afternoon. They take up maybe five milligrams at that point. Suddenly they've gone through the whole day with, yes, dealing with psychological uh, habituation. And, and, and patients will say this oh man, I still feel the psychology of it, but I don't have the drive. I don't have that that hunger for, for administering cocaine and, and getting it in there because I'm feeling like I'm crawling out of my skin or I'm, I'm dragging or whatever it is. Right. So, so look at, look what we've achieved just in this. We've, we've, we now have a safe patient, right? We now have a stable patient, right? And again, uh, you know, partner managing the Adderall, administering the medicine, all that's regulated. So now we've gone from these oscillations of massive upswings and massive downswings of substance use disorder to the stable oral dose of amphetamines, right? We know in a route of administration is critical. We, when we're smoking things, we're up and down, up and down. When we're shooting things, we're up and down. Well, oral dose, long acting, long dose curve. Suddenly we start to stretch the addiction, right? We're stretching the use out to where we're not getting these big oscillations. We're not getting, oh my God, I got to get it. Oh my God, I had it. Oh my God, I got to get it. We're not doing that anymore. We may be dealing with psychological issues, but just by allowing stable dosing, stable oral dosing, we have accomplished 
so much. And of course, we see that with Suboxone and opioids, and nobody's really screwing around with the, uh, with, the, with the stimulants now, but we're starting to mess with that, right? Again, they're, they're GPs and their psychiatrists kind of doing that. Um, and, uh, and, and man, it is cool. I mean, you know, I, I get these text messages. Oh my God, you know, <laughs> I'm still effing clean, you know, <laughs> piss test me now. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, Oh my God, relax. <laughs> because it's so helpful to them. So, so again, remember you have folks with addiction, they're drug users. If you can, if you can make even that a little better. And, and by the way, you know, patients with that, they're not looking at staying on Adderall forever. Right. They're not, you know, you know, the partners are like, you know, Hey, the, even the patient might be like, I want to go up in dose. And we know that they're already, a, you know, a bit pretty stimulated based on what they're getting. No, 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 we're not doing that. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful, man. Um, and of course, Sinclair method using, uh, using, uh, naltrexone and, and, uh, you know, uh, the blocking effect of that is wonderful. So, so when you have a, a person that's addicted to drugs and used to administering exogenous drugs, you know what? Hey, maybe take a course of treatment that's uh, involving exogenous drugs. And I will also say that even things like supplementation, right? So whether it be like 5-HTP or theanine, uh, you know, for someone with alcohol, um, you can sort of activate GABA receptors, make them a little more comfortable. So um, yeah, so I like giving patients who like to take things externally things externally that they can take because they're really good at that. And then once we get that stability and that we have that safety, we have the stability, then let's keep going. Then let's keep going. Your patient is safe. Your patient's not going to die. We're not going to have crises. At least we're not expecting that based on what we've achieved. And that's, of course, this isn't for any, everybody, you know, something like a supplemental therapy like that. Yeah. What circumstances must be true for you to decide with, with the patient that drug replacement well, would be the way to go. Well, f first, yeah, first of all, it would be obviously their, their GP, um, that, you know, the GPs are usually, you know, general practitioner or whatever. They're, they're reaching out to me. Oh, what, you know, what do you think? Whatever. But I'm not doing the prescribing. Um, you know, I'm looking what, what needs to be true. I would say, so what needs to be true is the patient based on the, you know, ASAM criteria is not able to achieve their goals um, in their current environment without additional support, right? So that's typically when you're moving up or down levels of the care. I see that as a, as a big factor in maintenance therapy. So if somebody is coming to me, they've had cocaine addiction, they probably have beat it a number of times by the time they come to me. Or this time they're like, man, you know, Glenn, it's, it's really kind of over the top and out of control. Um, I, 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 you know, or hey, or, or maybe we're even trying things like sober scheduling and meetings or whatever we're doing, and they still find that um, they're not able to achieve stability. They still find themselves making right turns into strange parking lots and phone calls and all that stuff on an outpatient basis. What a gift that we can then introduce something like maintenance therapy, or not maintenance therapy, that's the wrong word to use, um, almost like supplement therapy to, uh, to then help them stabilize their environment on that outpatient level. So that may not even be as, as necessary on the residential level, but to take a nice team approach with a psychiatrist, with their general practitioner, with their family members present, with their family members potentially, well, you can go pretty far to creating a pretty decent, you know, support network and, uh, you know, professional network that can, that can get you pretty there, pretty far up the, up, up the spectrum in terms of, uh, you know, wraparound care to some degree on the outpatient level. So, um, 
Yeah. I, I mean, on the outpatient level, we'll take what we can get. There's not enough effective treatments out there to be uh, picky and choosy, I would say. If someone you're working with is on uh, drug replacement, how mm-hmm. do you help that person gauge in time whether it would be helpful to stay on it or to continue taking it? Oh, I think it's just an exploration of, of where they're at. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's looking at, okay, you know, let's, let's talk about what it would mean like to taper off. Okay, well, we taper off. How long would that take? Um, okay, we're tapering down. Where are the risk factors? What, are, what kind of supports are in place right now? Um, you know, how are you responding to this medicine in terms of, of how is that different from when you, were, you know, weren't on the medicine? So we're just going to explore that. Um, you know, I used to run a methadone clinic over here and it was, uh, it was sort of similar in regard to when you look at someone tapering off. I mean, you would work with them, collaborate with them. You would have a, you know, a good taper regimen. We'd be getting all the supports in place. And if the, we'd also have a relapse prevention plan that if the patient did relapse, uh, they would have set up what they want to do. Do they, how would you, you know, how would you like us to respond to your relapse is kind of my question. Do you want us to, you know, look at going back up on the dose? We want to make those decisions outside of the, of the behavior, because of course we know during the, when the behavior is occurring, we're you know, things are dysregulated. We have all sorts of, you know, uh, stress and reactivity. We don't want to make good decisions like that. We want to have good, you know, planning set up ahead of time. Uh, you know, we want to use that, pre- that prefrontal thinking, man. We don't want to be all limbic reactive when we're trying to decide how we want to deal with a, you know, relapse or whatever. Yeah. So good planning, good structure, uh, being able to move in and out based on the 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 reality of whatever takes place. I'm, you know, oh, you're 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 good. You're you're likely to relapse. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know. Well, what do you mean? Well, yeah, probably. So, what are you doing now? With with that being the reality for a lot of folks that are dealing with what you're dealing, with, how are you structuring and setting up things where that's not a possibility? And then we're you know, of course, we're driving it you know, other types of rewards. Hey, if you do get off, think of what that might feel like. Think, you know, oh, wow, you really seem like you're going to have a strong sense of like, you know, you know, pride and value. And wow, you really seem to light up when you talk about that. And um, let's focus on those goals. And, the, you know, if, there, if that feels like a light at the end of the tunnel or the maintenance therapy feels aversive to you or, or whatever it is, um, we're, we're going to build that plan. We, we don't, and that's what's so cool about like individualized, you know, completely customized psychotherapy we're doing. Um, it doesn't depend. We, we, we don't have the model. The patient makes the model. We just work the model with the patient. Mm. So when you use the term relapse, I can, so I can think of that as you call it relapsing, and that that's that suggests to me that that happens only insofar as the goal is abstinence from a drug. Another way of looking at it, of course, is just simply that the person did a drug. Is that your term relapse that you use, or is that the, would that be the patient's term yeah, if that's what they well, want to use? Well, I would think that would you know it's funny. I, I'm thinking of like when the patients do use that. Um, you know, Terrence Gorski, big real. You remember him back in the day? Is he still around? <laughs> I don't know if he's still around, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gorski relapse prevention. So, so he used a couple of terms that were kind of cool. So he used the word relapse and then he had the word also. So he had, I think he used lapse too, but he had a relapse, which essentially that was the, you know, deterioration of a patient based on their use. So essentially they used, and this is by the way, another key part about harm reduction that's different from us. Mm. A lot of other patients relapse and abstinence only programs 
oh God, I've relapsed. I'm down the, the tube. We focus. If you relapse, I want you in there the next day. Are you high? Oh, but you're functional. You're coming in. We're not going to keep you out of therapy. We're going to get you right in there. We're going to we're we're going to work together because the worst is when you have a guy, who, you know, or a girl who does relapse, but then they don't have a way to re reaccess their help because the you know they, they either they feel so shame based, they expect their therapist to feel so shame based. You know, isn't it funny how patients are so bummed out about upsetting? You know, oh my god, I don't want to upset my family, so they just you know I'm not. Hey, they just don't pick up the phone for right, three or four right. days not my patients. I want them right back in there the next day. We understand that that's part of the nature of this. Um, you're not going to get to skip counseling. <laughs> you relapse. Um, so, uh, I don't know if that answered your question. Well, do you ever reframe, do you ever reframe that term relapse and use another oh, term back the toward the patient? Yeah. yeah so yeah, the yeah. other word Gorski would use was he called it a prolapse. Okay. So the idea was, was that if you relapsed, it was one of these sort of downward, more, not downward spiral, but, you know, everything, you know, things fell apart and they kept falling apart to you, you, you fell back down to wherever you might've been. Well, his term was a prolapse, right? And now remember Gorski, man, this is back like 20 years ago. I, you know, where, where a lot of this stuff is coming out, but prolapse was the idea that you could relapse or have a quote unquote, a lapse, right? So it starts with sort of a lapse, but what do you do with that? And I thought that was so freaking poignant because what it shows you is that there's learning in your quote unquote, if you, you know, to use that word relapse. And that's what he coined the term prolapse. So if you were learning, if you are addressing those issues, oh man, I didn't know I had this big, you know, oh, every time I get made fun of, I all of a sudden go to become, you know, I sort of melt down and want to drink or whatever. Well, if you're addressing that and sort of you've, you've lapsed in that, but you sort of come to terms with that, you're back, you get back on track. He would call that a prolapse, which was actually a positive experience to learning how to manage your addiction and part of the natural process of doing so. And isn't that a cool way of looking at it? Um, so, um, so, so rather than making it about what your patient administered or didn't administer in their mouth or arm, look at it. What did they do and what was their response as a result of their actual drug use? How modified is the pattern of getting back on track once they've gone off track? How much work has the therapist done with that patient to avoid uh, when they go off track, uh, you know, to get right back on track. How comfortable is that patient that when they do relapse, and that should be the expectation in reality, hello, all, all you providers out there, um, you know, has that therapist done the work where that patient comes in and feels completely comfortable and knows, oh man, hey, I fucked up, which is what they'll usually come with, right? That's usually the way, and, and but yet they are, they're immediately into the process of making things better, addressing where things broke down. They didn't go on in further use. Maybe even some of the skills you'd already set up prevented them from buying additional drugs. Maybe they used it just that one time. There's all sorts of ways to improve things, even when they do use in relapse. Um, so another area that, um, you know, people don't usually plan in residential treatment. Hey, if you do go meet with your drug dealer, how's that going to play out? Or what are we going to do about that? Um, they're already, oh, just don't use, just don't do it. Uh, go to a meeting, whatever. Well, that may not be the reality for that patient. So, um, so, so the idea of lapse uh, doesn't always have to mean bad. 
Yes, it's certainly uh, indicative of continuation of the use issue, but it doesn't mean that the patient doesn't learn in that moment. It doesn't mean the patient isn't accessible in that moment, and it doesn't mean the patient can't get ahead in that moment. Do you use the term to mean more than just that a person's done drugs? Even if it's a positive term, I mean, could you say that yeah, it's yeah? In a, a way, yeah. I think I, I think I kind of do. Um, you know, relapse. Um, you know, you look even you know Gorski. He he would look at relapse happening you know weeks ahead uh, of the actual drug use per se. So, do we have negative emotional experience? I you know I like the twelve step one on this. Um, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt. Um, those are pretty good. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are some solid relapse factors right there. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and again, uh, I, a lot, I would say a lot of conventional treatment looks at, uh, you know, uh, the drug itself. I'm much more interested in, in, in a patient that, oh, wow, each time they used to relapse, they used to disappear for a week. Oh, now all of a sudden, yeah, they do relapse, but then the next day they're right back into their pat, their their normal life functioning or they're, oh, they came right into therapy. And I mean, isn't that protective and wonderful versus a person that when they feel, hey, I, I used, well, I guess I'm totally screwed now. I'm going to throw it all away and go down the tubes. So I'm hoping therapists are working even in that capacity how to use drugs without it, uh, you know, resorting back right. to his uh, devastating of an experience. And, and by the way, I'll say one more thing on that. It's really important to have family on board with that. Um, you know, who's more, uh, you know, you know, uh, distraught when a patient uses and the family, Oh God, they use, they use, I don't want them feeling that way. I don't want them shaming the patient. I want them understanding this is probably the reality. I want them to knowing how can I best you know, help this person get back on track if they do wind up using. That's it. Um, you know, they don't have to, oh my gosh, you did it again. Um, that's only making the patient feel bad, you know, feel worse. And I can assure you, they already feel plenty bad about the relapse. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I do see relapse as sort of a, a broader term than just uh, taking something or not taking something. I see it as almost like the trajectory of the patient um, from that experience, right. even before that experience. Or So let me ask it this way. How about not, not centered around any sort of experience that has to do with drugs at all? And what I mean is, mm. if a person creates a plan for themselves, insofar as addiction is something, like look, I think we've already said, that reaches across multiple domains of life, if not every. So maybe the, maybe there are three problems, say. One is that uh, the person does drugs, and they would like to stop doing whatever drug it is. And then there's there are other problems, like I'm late for work a lot, or I get in fights with a spouse a lot. So could it be that getting in fights with a spouse would be something like a relapse, or a lapse, or a prolapse? Yes, yes. I, and I would I would frame all that up as part of the relapse pattern, hmm. right? So we know when that fight happens with the spouse that you feel disconnected, lonely, and want to run away from home. And we know when you feel disconnected, lonely, one away from home, you seem to have a certain, uh, you know, phone numbers that you sort of go to. So uh, how do we, how do we, you know, how can we address those, those not only the, you know, the, the uh, exacerbation of issues at home, how can we deal with those phone number issues? Do we need to throw your phone into the LOI canal here? It wouldn't be the first time. Um, but all of those steps, I call them micro moments. They're all moments of, uh, and points of intervention. 
right? When you look at craving and things, right? Craving comes and goes, it does pass. It's not this ongoing torment. It, it sort of has these, these little cycles. Um, so when you, so I look at relapse prevention a lot in these micro moments. Um, it's not that you have to manage craving continuously. You might have like a five minute window where all of a sudden it comes over you and you, you, you kind of feel washed over with urge. Now, what are you going to do? Are we going to four, seven, eight breathing and reduce stress? Are we going to use a cognitive strategy? Um, you know, how are we going to deal with that moment? But if you look at addiction, it's not just this like always, you know, always drug use. I mean, particularly the problem is when they don't have drugs, that's when things really get interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you can actually get some of these micro moments under control, like, like even, I mean, to give you an example, I had a patient, they were having a lot of tough time using, uh, you know, using stimulants, uh, amphetamine in the evenings, right? So it would, you know, they get off work and then they use, well, the intervention there, and you know, we didn't have to get real complicated. We just found out that if we modified his work schedule to where he was on the other side of the island during that period of craving, that we could actually eliminate relapse. And it was literally that to, you know, to where the point is, guys like, man, I'm just too far from my guy to get it, and I'm over here, and it just can't happen, right? So, so this isn't about some profound life, you know you know, digging into, you know, depth therapy kind of experience. This is a little tweak, uh, uh, you know, for the person's environment. And all of a sudden that was enough for them to, to manage and overcome an addiction. Hmm. So it, it, it's so specific and doesn't always have to be, you know, the, the, the airy fairy dig deep to the underlying issue. Um, you know, again, Dr. Scott Miller makes all, he, he has this thing, he puts on like a little comedy routine. He's like, He's like, we got to get, as therapists, he's like making a joke. He's, we got to get deeper. You got to get deeper in there. Get deeper. Well, well, where's that coming from? You know, I know that feels great as a therapist to think that, but a lot of times it's just a little structural intervention and you can already start chopping out drug use from the morning or chopping out drug use from the afternoon. We even have patients that are, you know, have habituated throughout full day of drug use who then can actually push it out of the morning and get into maybe just the afternoon. Okay, I'm not using before noon, right? So you can even retool the addiction all through sort of this micromanagement of, uh, of little parts. And again, not for everybody. Not everybody can do this. But if you're the patient that can, and I can reduce your, your substance use to half the day as opposed to the whole day, and you feel good about that, um, shoots, let's, let, let's go with that. And, uh, and, and then we'll see where that gets us. You can imagine an experience where a person realizes that, oh, I did use a drug again, but wait a minute, that gave me a positive experience. And when I, when I added up among all my other experiences that I, that I try to get in the long term, sure. it, it meets my medium to long term interest by using this drug. Oh, and I can, I can moderate and I can do it this way. How do you yes. help them disconnect that? If somebody wanted that and that was something that they wanted in their life, I would have no problem with that at all. It's not my job to make that judgment. Mm. Uh, but I would be looking at, you know, I'm always looking at the pattern. A lot of time adolescents are kind of in that situation where they're, they're you know, they're in, they're in sort of a negative pattern, but it's, it's sort of drugs, you know, they're, they're more focused, you know, on the drug, but, you know, bringing it back to the pattern of addiction. Um, I so I would look at other possible maybe not other possible rewards, but what are we missing out on life as a result of filling that time with the addiction? So I like replacement behaviors. I love engaging, you know, 
wow, you're, you're kind of an extremist and you like to use psychostimulants and you're young and, oh, you used to be an athlete. Well, hello, you're going to, you're probably going to be hearing about jujitsu or yoga or something. Uh, because, you know, putting a bunch of that into your evenings may feel more rewarding than the same, uh, you know, repeat experience of potentially administering a substance. And again, I'm not just putting that out there because I think everybody should or shouldn't use drugs. I'm putting that out there because, you know, part of the thing about, you know, uh, a use disorder is that you, you start to kind of lose some of the rewarding experiences that may have been there or, you know, present in your life prior to the use taking place. So, so I'm fine if somebody finds a non-problematic way to use drugs. Um, that's totally their prerogative. They have, I, I feel they should have every right to do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a libertarian to that degree. Uh, but at the same time, let's always be honest and explore what are we missing out on? You know, do we have relationship effects here? Uh, and, and if we are missing out on things, let's, let's also remember what that felt like. What does it feel like waking up with your partner the next day when she knows you didn't go out last night and use cocaine all night? You know, what does that feel like when you, when you turn to her and say, Hey, you know, Hey hon. And she looks at you and says, baby, I'm so proud of you. And, you know, feel that dopamine, man, or, or excuse me, and even the endorphins, right? Feel the endorphins, feel the opioids on that. I mean, there's a lot of reinforcement that, and a lot of reward that gets lost in substance use, right? It's kind of part of it because, again, the striatum is saying, uh, you know, this, this drug is, is what I need and that's doing it for me and I'm fine. Um, but you can start reintroducing. And I like that idea of reintroducing and replacing, you know, uh, you know, substance use behavior with maybe bigger and better things. Uh, you know, I almost see a, a addiction as filling deficits as opposed to, you know, or resolving pain or, or, or inducing pleasure, whatever. Um, as much as it is a, a, a sort of an entity in its own right. So it's almost like talking about the vacuum. You know, what are we doing with that vacuum? Uh, you know, if you were, if you were spending six hours watching TV each night and missing out on relationships and friends or whatever, and I, and I know you're comfortable with that, but is that, it, you know, are you, is that really where we want to go? Uh, why are, you know, why are you in counseling? <laughs> well, let me, let me so, apply some pressure there. What if the, what yeah, if the reasoning sure. is that the person says, well, you know, I'm taking methadone, let's say, and sure. that's really helped me stabilize and get to where I need to be. And you know, of late, maybe the last couple months or so, I'm realizing just how exhausting it is. And actually, it's kind of taking away from otherwise positive experiences yeah. I could be generating. Whereas, you know, I have whatever it is that there's an opiate that I can use once in a while. And I feel like that augments my experience. So mm -hmm. if I'm that person in just just the, the cost benefit, um, and then of course, there's a time element there, but does it, mm -hmm. does it actually help me over time, I would say it would be almost silly to continue methadone and not use the way they're using if those were the only two options. I would agree, you know, and and not to take words out of, again, uh, Kenneth Anderson's mouth. Oh, you should. Wonderful harm reductionist. Uh, but, you know, I would have a tough time debating that. Um, I would think his criteria, you know, what, what is the criteria when it becomes problematic or not? Well, do they meet criteria or not? If they don't meet a substance, a substance use criteria of low, medium, or mild, uh, then that doesn't really meet the qualifications for counseling. So why am I, you know, seeing a patient that, 
uh, is not meeting the criteria for a substance use disorder and they're actually real or they're satisfied with what they're doing. I, I would agree with you there. Um, my job is not to get the world sober or make everyone, uh, you know, use less drugs. My job is to work with people who are trying to achieve whatever variety of goals they're trying to achieve and help them get there. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if I'm just trying to pull something out of my, you know, rear end to try to make it fit to the conventional model of we're all getting sober one day, um, I'm probably a bit disconnected from my patient. Yeah. Well, so the reason I'm asking you, thank you. You're very articulate and you're, you're right. being very helpful because okay. I think what I hear a lot of people start where you started. And they might say something like, well, you know, if someone thinks they have a disease or if they think that if they think 12 steps is what's really helping them, then who am I to argue that? And maybe we'll talk, we'll have conversations and we'll get them to, as they move along and engage more with life, we'll see what their belief systems and how they change. If you get somebody talking about uh, replacement drugs, a lot of times, once you get to the point where somebody doesn't want to take the replacement drug or even wants to use a drug again, some of some of the harm reduction um, thinking goes out the window, and people are much more uh, close-minded, if I can say that, about, well, you know, maybe I should apply a little pressure on them not to be using drugs. Um, I think you were very careful at at sticking to your principles there. Do you ever? And, do you know what I'm saying though? Do you think people have sort oh, of an attitude? I totally know difference? what you're saying, and you can even you can even hear it in my voice, and you can you know you're seeing me on video. You can see it pulling on me. Right? Mm. So, so what you have there is you know 20 plus years of experience and conventional thinking about you know addiction <laughs> and things like that, leaning up against a a you know a, a human being trying to be a client centered therapist. Yeah, and the the two are not always compatible. Uh, we, you know, we have to remember our mentors. We, you know, Good. remember Barry Lesson. <laughs> you know, so, so guys been, what do you do yeah. when you get in a position like that? What, I guess what you're saying you, is that we're human beings. So, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you, 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 you check yourself. Mm. <laughs> you, you, you remember that this is your patient, that you were paid to be their therapist, that you were not paid to, to give them your sense of value and life course uh you are you are there for them and if you once you start not listening uh and you know even even if it's not something you agree with once you're disengaging once you're off on your own tangent about what will bring you to you know a, a higher level of whatever um, you know, your patient may be left behind in that process. So you're probably even moving a little too fast for the patient. Mm. Um, by the way, I'll tell you one thing that this gets a lot harder on adolescents. Um, and I know you're, uh, you, you work with adolescents yeah. and things like that. Yeah. It's even more tricky there, right? Because then you're dealing with, you know, developing brain and, you know, I, I you know, what do you do when you have a, <laughs> a, a, a 15 year old kid who's habituated on cannabis um, uh, you know, weed becomes legal, uh, not that, you know, not, not that much fallout. Well, we're so, so actually I can, I even give you some insight onto a patient like that. So what are we doing? We are building in a more attractive. So I, I love to make therapy fun, like I, even just addiction therapy. Like this is awesome, man. We're going to beat this habit. This is great. <laughs> we're going to have a great time. But 
but what kind of awesome things can we really tie into their life where they feel like belongingness and purpose and growth and learning and enjoyment? Um, and let's, let's drop those activities right on top of whatever sort of substance use you're having. Let's at least have that competing with the substance use uh, so, so we can at least offset maybe the patterns of addiction, even a few days a week. Um, so that's kind of where I'm looking at, at that. I'm, I, I'm not saying we're going to quit this, walk away and feel bad. I'm saying, man, you know, if quitting drugs sucks, well, that's no fun. Let's, let's build a life. That's wonderful. I mean, you have an opportunity mm, to, well you know, hope, you know, pursue your purpose and your passion. And I mean, this, you know, this pain, this discomfort, this is the point of change, right? This is creating the, the environment, uh, uh, of, of, of turmoil that is potentially where you can come out ahead of the game and let's explore what might've been lost or what you might've loved that's been left behind. You know, uh, the book that I just wrote that's out of March is, is about this concept. Development is a nice place to look for addiction patterns. Um, mm-hmm. In your work with families and adolescents, do you work with yeah. people through non-drug related addictions? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, video games are becoming like a, a major part of my practice now right? Phone addiction. Um, you know, those things make lots of little, uh, endogenous opioid and dopamine hits too. Um, and, and actually I would say, God, I would, I might even say video games somewhat rival drug addiction now. <laughs> um, but in terms those of are, salience, those are, in terms of, uh, what's, what's oh, yeah, present. Like yeah. Fortnite? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, you can get someone so dialed in on their phone. Um, you know, it doesn't even have to be that. Uh, you, you can have. Uh, I don't, I don't want to know if reading is one. Reading, I would say, is more a bit of an escape behavior when you get sort of problematic reading and things like that. But uh, well, and then, but if you, yeah, I guess, I guess the reading itself, but the experience you have, you have, of you reading. You have k- kids who escape in their books, right? I mean, you've seen that. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm not socializing. I'm disconnected. I'm. I'm sort of reducing my anxiety if I just get a book. Yeah, and I would definitely call that an addiction. And that's, that's where I like the book is the proxy for the drug. And that really helps me to articulate um, mm-hmm. my non-disease bias is that mm-hmm. it's really not the book there, is it? Kind of like you're addressing. It's not really the book. Function it's the of behavior. Right, my exactly. fellow behavioral specialist. That's right. <laughs> Function <laughs> of behavior. <laughs> Glenn, before we are going to sadly end, is there anything sure. that you'd like to talk about that we haven't touched quite yet? Um, I hope my, my, my most greatest wish for this podcast is that other therapists and providers can hear this and know that, that we're out there. Family for Sensible Drug Policies is out there. Um, there are, by the way, you should know, in, in terms of the FSDP thing, um, you know, they're a big reason why I'm, why I'm here in that sense. It, I, you know, I went to this International Drug Policy Reform Conference a couple of years ago, met all these leaders in uh, drug policy reform, uh, Barry Lesson out of there. Um, he was the one that taught me, Glenn, we have been harming our patients. And mm. ever since that happened, it was like, it's like someone shooting a lightning bolt through your face as a therapist. It's not an easy thing to, to sort of absorb. Um, but I, I bring them up because there you have not only therapists, but you have a group of, fa- you know, you have families coming together who recognize that there is a rational, uh, sensible way through this 
through this experience of drug addiction and drug addiction in the age of prohibition. And when it comes to reducing harm and making things better, you know, those are the guys, whether it's their Facebook group or whatever, they're the guys who I will go to uh, towards looking at that. So I just want other providers to know that you're not alone. Uh, you're not, you know, you're not encouraging drug use. You're not doing any of those things. You're simply trying to help more patients. And please follow up uh, in, in with FSDP or whatever um, if you want some support or getting a sense to know that uh, Mark Burroughs uh, was another guy who actually we connected like this. And, and he was another therapist who felt kind of out there and didn't know anybody else was doing this. So, so just this conversation, if we can pull other therapists together and they too can know that they're not alone and they're thinking to help patients uh, more than the conventional model, um, that's what I would want out of this more than anything. Well, I'll share it widely. How can people reach you if they want to learn more about you and your work? Um, you, you can visit our website, familyaddictioncounseling.com over here in Hawaii. You can be a patient if you want to come <laughs> in. You can reach me at Glenn at familyaddictioncounseling.com, and uh, we look forward to helping. I feel lucky to get to talk with you and grateful that the folks at Families for Sensible Drug Policy recommended that I talk with you. I think, they're, I think that's great. I appreciate that as well. Of course. Their senses are on point. Cool. Glenn Carner, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. Zach, my pleasure. Keep up the good work, man. Love the podcast. Thanks so much. You ready to get inside the rocket? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to support us, again, please go to patreon.com slash the social exchange and become part of the team. Thank you one last time to our new patrons, Inigo, Mary Kay Villaverde, MT. Chris, Megan McGilloway, Mariore Israel, and to Kathleen Cochran. We'll see you next time. Be inside the rocket and fly.